Hello everyone and welcome to another exciting episode of the Product Pioneers podcast where Code University students interview industry leaders about building great products, product management, startups, founding and more. This episode covers a lot of ground because our guest today is no other than Tom Candle, the Director of Hardware Engineering at Ironox. Ironox is a US-based indoor farming startup that aims to solve global climate through our food, grown renewably using technology. They use greenhouses, robotics, automation, and AI to optimize everything about the plant growing process, including energy consumption and waste reduction. They are one of the only indoor farming startups that have the chance of becoming carbon negative in their operations. Tom Candle oversees multiple teams at Ironox and has over 10 years of experience building and managing hardware products at different scales. He also worked as a process engineer at Apple. In this episode, we'll talk about Ironox and the development process of their new farm robot Grover from start to finish, how to manage multiple teams and what it is like as a director of hardware engineering on a daily basis. We also talk about what it is like to work at Apple as a process engineer being responsible for the production of millions of parts a day. So without further ado, let's tune in and get all the details from Tom Candle. Enjoy. All right, Tom, welcome to the show. I'm happy to have you here today. Yeah, thanks for thanks for having me, Simon. So I always like to start off with an icebreaker, and that is, what did you want to do when you grew up? Yeah, um, I think it's always been it's always been engineering um, for as long as as I can remember. So I think probably in my my teen years, uh, I would have been focused a lot more on on motorsport engineering. I uh, was the was the real passion. And I spent I spent a while as a professional race mechanic for a few different outfits, uh, which was you know great experience and a really good time uh, for a young guy. But um, you know ultimately kind of ended up going going a bit of a different path. Um, but yeah, still pretty passionate about the, the motorsport side of things. So it's not not too far off from your job that you have today, huh? Yeah, a little bit. Um, you know, it's still the the lack of kind of the creativity and being a race mechanic was um, what kind of drove me out of it. Um, you know, it's a lot of, it's a lot of work and it's a lot of fun, but you know, you're not, you're not designing things and you're not creating things. Uh, and ultimately, you know, that kind of <laughs> led me to, to kind of go back into an engineering space and, and pursue that a bit more. So um, yeah, a little bit different today than, than what I was doing um, as a race mechanic, but yeah, it's a lot of it's it's good. Could you give us like a short uh, history of like how you ended up at where you are today at Ironox, and we also touch a bit on your experience at Apple. So how did this uh, come to be, and like how did you get there? Yeah, um, I've got I've got kind of a, a weird, diverse background. Um, you know, I spent a lot of time in industrial automation when I lived on the the east coast of the U.S. Um, I worked in, you know, as a race mechanic, as I said, um, from that, I, I worked in semiconductor uh, at a company called ASML as a precision mechanics engineer, went back to kind of the original automation company I'd been working for, for, for a few years to manage some of their engineering work. Um, so I was there for, for four years or so, and eventually ended up um, moving to California and, and working for Apple for a couple of years. And from Apple to a um, drone company called Matternet, and then from from Matternet to here um, at at Iron Ox doing 
agriculture. So um, kind of a, a diverse array of, of different industries, for sure. I think it's really inspiring for me to see that like every step on the career path adds experience and you just um, can use that usually or maybe uh, in the next job and uh, excel it even more. Yeah, even even the you know even the stuff that you think um, you know even if you have a bad job, right? Or you're kind of in a bad environment and and things aren't going the way you want. You know the the takeaways from that are are sometimes a bit more obvious than you know when you're at a good place, right? Like it's really easy to see what is working at a company level and what isn't working at a company level when you're you know somewhere that's that's not doing really well. So. Um, yeah, I mean, even at times they weren't, you know, all stellar jobs, but, you know, every, every one of them has a, you know, an immense amount of kind of opportunities for, for learning and, and takeaways for sure. Right. Let's, let's dive deeper into your time at Apple because, you know, it's quite rarely that you, uh, get to talk to someone that worked at Apple. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, how, what did you do there and, uh, how did you get, uh, to Apple? Yeah. Um, I was a I was just a process development engineer there on the iPhone team, and this would have been you know around 2014. I think that was the iPhone like six seven era. So I was on a, a process development team working on uh, enclosures. So that would be basically everything that you can see on the outside of the phone. So um, the phone housing itself, all the the buttons and kind of trim pieces and small parts, camera lenses. Um, camera trim, SIM trays, cover glass, um, all of those parts uh, were something that kind of my group worked on. Um, and the whole, you know, the whole goal there is um, basically working with, with a really multinational diverse supply base and, and trying to hone in manufacturing processes for all of these different parts and components. Um, and again, to basically uh, a standard that that Apple is, is happy with. Um, and that is kind of for a, for something that you're producing, you know, a million of a day, if you're producing a million phones a day to have that, that level of precision and that level of fit and finish is, is like really unheard of. Um, so, you know, it was, it was definitely a different experience for me, uh, working, working there and working in a strictly manufacturing role. Um, you know, all my roles have basically been, um, had some kind of design context to them, but, that role was, you know, just 100% manufacturing. Um, so I spent, you know, an inordinate amount of my time in China and going to different um, vendors in Japan and um, other other areas in Asia, and um, basically developing manufacturing processes for for different components. Um, so primarily the um, kind of small parts that you can see, so the buttons on the phone, the SIM tray. Uh, components like that because they're as you can imagine done in you know a different way than you would do for you know a, a phone housing right uh, they're very small and they just have kind of different manufacturing processes so um yeah it was kind of just a lot of um travel to vendors and and working with them to get tooling and fixtures and set up machining parameters and um yeah just iterate on, on a lot of different process steps to to get you know, each one of these little parts to a, a scalable, a scalable situation. So that's really like hands-on work in the workshop. Yeah, it's with, uh, in conjunction with the vendors, right? So, um, you know, they have a Apple, you know, as a company has a, a really incredible array of vendors um, that will, 
yeah, I mean, they're running most of these trials and tests with you. Um, and if there's something like ideas that you have that you want to try and, you know, you're working with the team there to, you know, they'll, they'll machine up the tooling and you can try different fixtures and try all these other things. Um, so yeah, you're really working kind of in conjunction with them to, to be able to develop all these, you know, really advanced manufacturing processes. What is like the, the time frame from a new iPhone model? Like you mentioned iPhone six, seven is when you started at Apple, but in the end you worked for components for the iPhone 10, like, was that already planned? Yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't on the 10. Um, that was, that was way, way, way past my time there. Um, but you know, Apple, you know, I think they release a phone every September, right? So you can kind of from that infer what a development cycle looks like to, to get everything, um, everything done. So, um, like how does the, the teamwork look like on, at Apple? Like, uh, do you, like, is there like the Californian design team and then they hand stuff over to you or um, do you actually sit in one, one room and come up with ideas? Like, how is, how is it done? It depends. It depends what group you're in um, and we'll, we'll kind of dictate where, what, you know, groups that you're, you're heavily involved with. Um, you know, for me, working the manufacturing side, it was heavily involved with product design team. Um, so the people doing the actual detailed design work on you know, all these, all these components, as well as kind of the industrial design team um, who are, are kind of setting the specs and, and, you know, the standard of quality that, that Apple has. So it was, um, you know, a lot of, you know, being on the floor in, in a factory in China, you know, you have certain dimensions that you're trying to hit for, you know, a machine feature, right? And, You know, the biggest thing about producing all these parts at scale is you need to develop a really stable manufacturing process. So when you're making millions and millions of parts a day, you know, a tiny percent yield loss is, is a huge amount of, of wasted material and, and cost. So, you know, the goal is to get all these manufacturing processes incredibly stable with a very, um, you know, high yield and, and producing millions and millions of really accurate parts. Um, so that that just requires a lot of, And the interaction with the product design team, um, going back and saying, you know, can we relax this tolerance or we can tighten this tolerance or, you know, whatever the case may be. Um, and working with the vendor to, to really hone in on all of these features of a part to be able to, to get them, um, to be able to make them in, in scale and, and hit all the dimensions, hit all the requirements. And same thing, you know, when you're, when you're talking about the cosmetic finish of the part, you know, where's, where are you, um, you know, where's the acceptable level? Uh, which, you know, for Apple is immensely high. Um, you know, if you, if you look at these parts under a microscope, I mean, they look like little, little jewels. So, you know, getting them to that level isn't, isn't easy. Um, and, you know, I think that's what you know, makes them you know, consistently produce such a, a high-end product. Let's say you have the, the Simtray uh, piece that you're making. Do you get like the dimensions from the slot where you put it in from the other team that makes the bigger housing or... Yeah, so I mean, you'll have the the product design team that's working on the whole the whole phone essentially, right? And you know, someone's someone's got a job there whose job is to is designing a sim tray, and and they're they're designing it in conjunction with you know all the mating you know features of of the phone, and um, you know, as a as a process development engineer or you know a manufacturing engineer, you know, I'm working with that that designer to be able to. Um, you know, get that part made to those specs so that when you start looking at the tolerance stack up and you're looking at, 
you know, the gap of your SIM tray when it fits in a, in a housing, um, you know, meets, meets all the specs. Sounds, sounds very, very interesting. Like, can you share more on the challenges that like when you produce a million parts, what is, you said like yield loss, a stable process, but like how, how do you ensure that? I mean, it needs to run for quite some time, right? Uh, up front and then while you produce it and for some certain time and are there any tricks or approaches that you take? So when you look at, you know, manufacturing something in that scale across, across any industry, um, you know, if you give a part to, you know, a, a machine shop to make and you give them the specs and, you know, anybody's going to be able to probably make your part, make one of them. Right. And, you know, they, they know that the machine they're putting it on is good and that, you know, there's no, there's no backlash in any of the lead screws and that, you know, the, the precision of the machine is there and, you know, there's, there's more time that can go into setting it up and, you know, ensuring the, um, you know, the, the starting point of the machine, ensuring that, you know, the stock you're using, you know, everything, everything is, is kind of a one-off and, and handled specially, right? When you go, you know, into mass production for something that, you know, you're making, you know, a million of a day, and, you know, you walk into a factory and you have, you know, 3,000 CNC machines all running at once and they all have tooling, you know, you're going to have variances across all of those, all of those machines, right? And you're going to have variances across that tooling. You're going to have, you know, differences in operators that are, you know, loading parts into that system. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a huge mix of um, kind of opening up tolerances to a point where, you know, you're still meeting the the design intent and, and the functionality and the fit and finish of whatever you're making, you know, and you combine that with, um, you know, producing the tooling with, you know, the, the proper tolerances, producing even the manufacturing process, like your, your cutters and, and your feeds and speeds of, of the machine and the coolant you're using and, you know, anything like that, you know, making sure that that's stable and repeatable across all these machines. Um, and uh, another huge aspect of it is is quality control, and you know how are you ensuring that you know out of three thousand CNC machines all making these parts that they're all within spec and that their spindles are all you know running you know the way they should and don't have any run out and um, you know there's a there's a lot of people involved in, in making that that successful. Um, so yeah, it's it it applies to anything that that you want to do at that scale, and you know if if you have really huge tolerances, it's, it's really easy to, to machine parts and, and make parts within spec. Right. But if you have really tight tolerances, the tighter that gets the more expensive, your part is the, the more kind of constrained your vendor base is right. You know, the vendors that you can find that can actually produce that part in, in your spec in, in high quality, get fewer and fewer. Right. If you have, you know, very um, kind of loose tolerances and easy to machine parts, you know, anybody's going to be able to do that for you. You know, the more precise it gets, you know, your supply chain gets limited. Um, you know, the people that can actually do that are limited. You start to get, you know, things start to get expensive, things start to get, you know, very specialized. So, um, you know, there's an immense amount of challenges that that kind of go into it. Um, I think a lot of it, a lot of it is on the supply chain side and, and the people that you can partner with to produce, you know, whatever parts you're, you're trying to do, um, at that scale. But yeah, I mean, walking into a, a factory and seeing thousands of CNC machines all humming away, making, making parts is really pretty impressive. 
What are like uh, key learnings that you had from that time? For me, probably more, maybe more on the soft skills side of things, like how to present to large groups. You know, um, when you when you're presenting to a group of you know 30 people of all different, you know, they all have a different you know role and responsibility, and whether that's from a you know someone on your team up to exec level. Um, and, you know, you're trying to deliver this information to a very broad range of people, you know, how do you distill that down into something that's, that everyone, one is going to pay attention to when you've got, you know, two slides to be able to do it, to convey, you know, exactly what you need to, um, you know, hold their attention and, and kind of deliver that, that messaging and make, make decisions on it. Um, that was, that was probably, I think, soft skill wise, the biggest thing I learned there. Um, you know, outside of that, I became very good at international travel, I guess. So that was another one. Very useful these days. Yeah, maybe not so much these days, but yeah. So basically perfecting the art of uh, presenting as Apple does with their keynotes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's, um, I mean, it's, it's cool. It's, it goes kind of through every level of, of the culture there. Um, but it is very important, right? I mean, there's a lot of stakeholders in, in all of these these projects and systems and, and being able to communicate kind of clearly and effectively and, and drive decisions with, with a group that big is, is um, it's not easy. How big is the design team at Apple? Um, I, yeah, I actually don't know. Um, you know, there, there's different facets of, of what they're, everyone's working on. Um, so yeah, I mean, yeah, I wouldn't even, even, I won't, yeah, I won't have an answer for that. Yeah, it just boggles my mind, like how you organize such a big company and everyone works towards the same or similar goals. It's just... Yeah, the interesting uh, thing is it feels like a... It feels like... Different level. <laughs> yeah, it feels like a startup, though. It feels very different than I think you would expect. Um, it feels very different than kind of a, a huge a huge company. You know, the the level of kind of documentation for things. And it feels it feels like scrappy, like a, like a startup. It doesn't necessarily feel like, you know, a huge corporation where you expect a lot of process and documents and you know red tape um, i think people are able to move very like quickly there and and really iterate fast and and do things which is why i think um i don't know how they made manage to to kind of keep that that culture as they've, they've grown to you know stratospheric levels but um yeah i mean as far as big companies go it's really uh, it's a really cool place to work for sure speaking of like really cool place to work and startups it's, I think, the perfect segue for Ironox. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, Ironox is Ironox is awesome. Um, you know, we're we're in we're in Silicon Valley. Um, you know, we're an agriculture technology startup. Um, you know, our ex expertise in plant science, robotics, artificial intelligence. Um, and the overarching mission of the company is to basically grow really great fresh produce, um, essentially carbon negative. Right. So, you know, there's a there's a huge kind of issue with uh, with food security now, um, you know, water consumption when you when we're growing, growing crops, um, you know, food waste as it, you know, before it even makes it to, you know, supermarket shelves. Right. So, um, you know, I think food waste as a whole at this point creates about like four point four gigatons of, of emissions. Um, and it's, it's something that people, I don't, I don't think it's on everyone's radar, right? When you look at, 
um, kind of everything everything going greener and, and solving global global climate challenges. You know, a lot of people look at you know cars or transit or um, burning fossil fuels. Um, you know, I think solving post harvest waste in in you know the food supply chain. Uh, is essentially has the same impact of of you know every car going to electric, right? It has like massive impact, and I think it's pretty pretty low on people's people's radar at this point. Um, so so Ironox is really kind of working to um, make a huge impact in one that's like the quality of of really great produce that that we grow hyper locally, right? So um, we shorten the supply chain from you know, where we're growing this produce to, to the end customer. Um, you know, I, I live in California now and, and grew up on the East coast. And, you know, if you're buying, if you're buying leafy greens on the East coast in December, right? Like that food has basically come from California. It's traveled thousands of miles, you know, it was harvested weeks ago. And when it ends up on the supermarket shelf, it's, you know, it's pretty wilted and dismal looking um, and has had just a, a massive kind of carbon impact just to get there. Um, so I think, you know, with any controlled environment agriculture, we're able to, to put these facilities where the end user is going to be. So, um, you know, right now we're opening our kind of second production facility in Lockhart, Texas. Um, so that's in construction right now. We've started growing crops out of that. Um, that's, you know, 535,000 square feet and that'll service you know, in Austin, San Antonio, um, and, and major population centers around there. Um, and that'll all be, you know, kind of a same day harvested in the morning can be on a supermarket shelf in the afternoon kind of thing. So, you know, we're making a pretty significant impact from, you know, supply chain side of things, um, from using, you know, a lot of, a lot of data and a lot of, um, kind of, Crop modeling and, and AI to be able to grow things hyper effectively, right? So basically, not not using any more nutrients than the plant actually needs, not using any more water than than is absolutely necessary. The water that you know might be left over after we grow gets um, reclaimed and treated for for any kind of pathogens or or bacteria, um, and then reused in the system. So. Um, the impact from kind of a water standpoint is, is huge as well. Yeah, I mean it's 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 a pretty it's a pretty awesome space to be to be working in right now for sure. What really caught my eye for for Ironox specifically was like the numbers that you know like uh, less miles traveled, uh, less water used, um, less space used um, are usually like the like I'd say common numbers quote unquote when like. On, on indoor farming website startups, right? Um, but the one number that really is, I think, very different from, from others is 75% less energy than other companies, than other indoor farming startups, I think you, you, you said, right? Um, on the website. And so I think that's very interesting. How do you do that? <laughs> yeah, so I mean, I think, I think the key differentiator there is, is just how we've architected the system. Right. Um, you know, we're not a vertical farm and I think there's, there's kind of pros and cons to uh, everything you do, right. When you, when you do something like this, but, um, or every path you take when you do something like this, but 
you know, we grow, we grow in a greenhouse, you know, we grow kind of in a single, single plane using, using natural light. Um, the sun's a pretty powerful and abundant energy source. Um, so, you know, when you look at, when you look at, you know, growing a lot more responsibly and, and with the ultimate goal of going, you know, carbon negative on, on how we produce, you know, a huge amount of food. I mean, it makes, it makes total sense. Um, I think, you know, in my opinion, and I'm not sure vertical farms are solving the right, the right issues. Um, I think the, you can definitely grow a lot when in a small footprint, but I don't know if that's really the, the problem. The problem is arable land, right? So land that you can actually grow crops on is, is harder and harder to, to come by the land that's been used for that is, is kind of rapidly being depleted. The water consumption and conventional farming is just massive, right? You know, I don't know what small percentage of, of the water that you're using to irrigate a field actually makes it to a crop. Um, and I think, you know, with, with vertical farm, you don't have the option to use natural light, right? So anything you do requires a lot of, of grow LEDs and, you know, LEDs are very efficient, but, you know, they're still, they're still not, not the sun, right? And they're still not free. So, you know, to have a vertical farm, you, you're going to have a huge amount of power consumption, right? And especially if you're, if you're generating a ton of heat with these, and you're, now you're, you're pumping coolant through them. You know, now you're running, running huge pumps and, and moving all this water around and, you know, it ends up being probably a pretty big impact from an energy standpoint. So, you know, I think there's a lot of ways to, to kind of make improvements in, in, you know, the farming space and, you know, iron ox is kind of whole model relies on um, kind of growing in a conventional greenhouse with, with natural light and, and doing it in like a really um, kind of responsible way. That's actually what really excites me about Irox is that different, uh, that different approach. Yeah. The, the, the main component of, of the whole system um, is kind of our, our mobile robot, um, which we call Grover. Um, and, you know, we have these hydroponic modules that, that we grow in. Um, they're about a hundred gallons each and, and Grover's job um, is to basically go out on the farm and, and move these modules around. Um, you know, this, this allows us to operate in a really precise way. Um, you know, we have kind of like a whole closed loop system using Grover and, and we optimize plant yield, we reduce growth cycle time, um, we can maximize quality, um, basically, you know, grow, grow more with less. Of, of everything, right? So whether that's less nutrients and less water and, and really give plants the, you know, exact things that they need versus, um, you know, a lot of it going to waste. So, you know, it, it's a very flexible architecture. Um, the grower's whole job is to basically manipulate these modules, these hydroponic grow modules around our greenhouse. Um, and we'll, he'll move plants to different stations, right? So whether that um, is a scanning station that'll, that'll kind of look for, um, any issues that we're seeing in the plants or, or look at that grow yield or just the inspection for quality. Um, you can move into a water sampling station that will analyze, you know, the contents that are of the water and make sure like that's on track. If not, that station can, you know, make adjustments to that water, to the nutrient content, to the pH level, um, you know, we can move, move from there to harvesting if it's time to harvest plants. 
Um, Crow will take new plants and bring them back out onto the farm. So, you know, the way the system is architected is we have kind of one central area um, that handles all of the kind of automated processing and, and data collection stations and, and all these things. And, and Grover's job is to just kind of manipulate modules through all of these different stations at, at the right time and, and fully autonomously. Um, yeah, I think the other the other kind of um, benefit of the architecture that that we created is, you know, when you're growing when you're growing kind of leafy greens and, and crops like that, they're very small, right? Um, but as you start looking into other crop types, uh, like fruiting crops or, or vine crops, you know, they, they end up taking up a lot more space. Um, they end up needing kind of a different architecture for um, how they grow, right? And the way our system is set up is, is we're not limited to just leafy greens, right? We can grow um, fruiting crops like strawberries, we grow tomatoes, um, you know, anything that, you know, we can essentially grow hydroponically, you know, we're set up to, to be able to do that. And that was a big kind of reason for the architecture direction. Yeah, that's another big one, right? Because everyone, at least currently, is able to grow leafy greens. Some start with strawberries and some fruiting crops, but um, I mean, and that's not... I was super interested in, in indoor farming like three years ago, and then I thought, yeah, it solves the food crisis or like feeds people, right? And then everyone just grows basil and uh, and lettuce, if, if at best, right? Or like uh, broccoli, so yeah. Um, like leafy greens and in the end it's like the rice and the, the staple crops that actually bring the protein and actually feed people in, in that sense, right? I mean, obviously you need the other ones as well, but um, I was a bit, that's why, that, that's why it's super cool that there's like other, um, you know, like methods coming up that actually allow for these types of crops as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I mean, I think, you know, as a, as an industry, it's, it's just the beginning, right? I think you're, you'll see just all kinds of advancements in that aspect and, and what people are growing and, you know, how, how effectively they can grow it, um, you know, over the next, the next years. But, um, yeah, it's important to, to kind of structure the system uh, with that in mind, right? You know, you don't want to architect an entire system, pigeonhole yourself into growing, you know, just leafy greens, so yeah, absolutely. What are uh, challenges for a greenhouse? So if you grow stuff in a greenhouse rather than a completely controlled environment with lights. Yeah, I think I think they probably have, have pretty similar challenges. You know, even if you have a very controlled environment, um, yeah, you can still you can still get pests, right? You can still have typical challenges that you'd have in a farm. Um, you know, the best thing is you're able to, to really identify those and mitigate them without kind of conventional farming techniques, right? So, um, you know, when you have a good kind of integrated pest management plan that works, like we don't use, we don't use um, like pesticides and, and anything like that. Um, you know, one thing that I always, always found like absolutely fascinating being in this space is, you know, if you do see like aphids or something, you know, we're able to release like little um, basically wasps that, that then, you know, will <clears throat> find these aphids and, and essentially lay their eggs inside the aphids and hatch more wasps. And, um, you know, under a microscope, it's, it's like a horror film, but, um, you know, from a, 
you know, how do you naturally you know, mitigate things like that? I think it's, you know, it's absolutely fascinating. So, you know, being able to have that controlled environment does, you know, give you, give you options like that. Um, you know, for us growing a greenhouse, um, you know, thermal management is, is, I would have to imagine more challenging than if you were kind of in, in a fully enclosed building, but, um, you know, we have just fully automated greenhouse systems that, um, can handle that. And, and greenhouses have been, have been doing that for, for years and years. Um, so, you know, I think I didn't, the benefits from, I think, being able to use natural light for, for our growing, um, and in that environment, probably far outweigh any, any negatives from it for sure. I mean, I'm not a greenhouse expert for sure, but like, is there, does it happen when there is no light? Does it happen if like the sun doesn't shine for a week? And is that a, how do you mitigate that? Or is that not a problem to have? So, I mean, I guess it depends where your greenhouse is, right? Um, however, you know, we do have the ability to, to supplement with lighting. So, you know, ideally in the winter, right? When you're getting kind of less sunlight per day, like we can, we can supplement with LED lighting for, you know, an additional one, an additional two hours a day. So for the plants that so we can give them, you know, year round the absolute perfect grow conditions every single day, uh, which is kind of the big difference compared to conventional agriculture, right? Where you're just at the, the mercy of the weather and you're changing the seasons and, and whatever the case may be. But, you know, even if, even if you have periods where you're, you don't have optimal um, kind of maybe sunlight conditions, you know, that's something that we can, we can absolutely supplement with LEDs, but you know, we don't need to run LEDs for 12 hours a day. You can run them for maybe one hour a day to just kind of supplement that. Let's dive deeper into um, your day-to-day -day work. So you're the director of hardware engineering at Ironox, which is a cool title <laughs> for sure. Um, yeah. Like how, how does your day-to-day -day look like? Uh, what kind of teams are at Ironox and how do you manage those and what kind of teams do you manage and so on? Yeah. Um, well, the day-to-day -day is kind of, kind of all over the map. Um, yeah, you can split it up probably between tactical, strategic, uh, and, and I think just general management, you know, from, from the tactical side, um, my day-to-day -day is probably a lot more on the creating and executing side of things, uh, depending on where we are in different, different project cycles. You know, we'll have multiple projects in the works at, at any time. Um, some are maybe in more of a conceptual stage. Others are, are on the shop floor being built right now. So, um, you know, it's always, it's always kind of a mix. Um, it'll be design reviews, project kickoffs, production check-ins, uh, mitigation plans for supply chain challenges that pop up. Um, managing timelines and, and resources for, for that kind of stuff. Um, from the more strategic standpoint, you know, there's a lot of um, project planning, budgeting, resource planning, um, technology research, uh, developing roadmaps for, for future tech and, and how those tie into to business goals. Um, then, you know, on the management side, it's, you know, everything that just, that goes into to running a successful team. So it's, you know, one-on-ones with teammates, uh, a lot of cross-functional meetings with, with other groups, um, trying to do headcount planning and build out, build out the team. Um, a lot of conversations with, with our people, people ops group, uh, sourcing candidates, doing interviews, kind of everything like that. So, 
um, yeah, it'll be it'll be kind of a mix of all of that every single day. Um, but you know, as far as as far as the company and the teams that we have here, you know, it's um, we're we're basically fully fully vertically integrated company. You know, we do we do everything essentially in house, and we're the owner uh, and operator of the farm itself, and all these you know farms that we will be turning on. So, you know, to be able to do that, you know, we don't just have you know, we're not just like an engineering company developing tech. We're you know an engineering company developing tech as well as you know an operations company that you know is growing really incredible produce and then has to has to sell it. Um, so you know the company has you know we have operations teams, finance teams, marketing, communications, um, product and, and project management teams, um, growing plant science, uh, business development, people ops. Uh, engineering for you know hardware software uh, all of that so so yeah it's a very uh, it's a very diverse company as far as as kind of skill sets and, and stuff like that goes um, which has probably been I don't know one of the one of the most interesting companies I worked at just for that reason you know typically if you get into a hardware space you know you you are working with you know other hardware engineers or you're working in conjunction with software engineers and that's Kind of the bulk of, of who you're interacting with you know here being a vertically integrated company and and the user of our own product you know as an engineering organization like our customer are is the grow team right and the operations team that are that are using this equipment um so there's a lot of interaction with them um there's a lot of interaction with with the plant sciences groups and and um, you know the people responsible for actually growing the produce Right, to make sure that all this equipment that we develop and, and implement is is growing really um, great produce and, and it's operating reliably and um, you know allowing production to, to hit the numbers that they need to hit um, so so yeah it's kind of a it's an interesting it's an interesting space to be in from from the hardware side for sure because normally you're not you're, you kind of have uh, a very limited view or, or limited exposure to the people that that you're interacting with but yeah so um, you know, as, as director of a hardware engineering, my, my team basically does all the design, um, engineering, manufacturing, um, production, commissioning of any of our hardware products. So that'll be, you know, the hydroponic grow module um, that we grow everything in, um, you know, the Grover, uh, the other robotics and automation systems that, that we have in the greenhouse and in production. And then, um, you know, we'll do all the, the installs and commissioning and bring the systems online and then and handing those systems off to the, to the operations and, and grow teams. Let's, uh, let's dive deeper into um, one specific project, um, which is Grover, the, the moving robot that you already touched on. Um, yeah, let's just go from like start to finish um, because you told me that I think you started during 2020 with the like design work and so on. Like what, how does it happen? Like what was the state in the beginning? Um, like what was the, yeah, what was the business state in the beginning? How do you find the solution? You know, when I, when I joined uh, Ironox a, a couple of years ago, uh, the robot that we had at that time uh, was called Angus and um, was was a much different architecture, uh, and it was this kind of beautiful robot with um, the mechanism wheels and, and able to kind of move in, in X and Y, and 
really kind of um, fit the bill for, for the architecture that we had at the time. Um, there are definitely, you know, with any hardware system, trade-offs and, and challenges. Um, and we kind of recognize the need to, to change the architecture a bit. Um, and that was for a multitude of reasons. One is to, to be able to diversify crop type kind of down the road, um, create a, a robot system that, that was going to have more safety, right? It's, it's really hard to kind of create a safety system. Um, if you have wheels that when you stop them, the, the system can keep moving. So, um, you know, safety was a big aspect of, of the need for redesign. Um, and then just kind of the, the theories of around how we wanted to do the guidance and, and navigation of the robot um, and, and create, you know, a bunch of these that can all work in, in unison and um, kind of work around each other. So, you know, there were a lot of reasons that, that we decided to kind of go in a different direction from Angus. Um, and, you know, I think the, the beauty of a startup is that, that you can work really, really fast, right? Um, you, you know, giving people carte blanche to, to just kind of come up with the right solution and push forward and um, get it done, you know, means, means things happen on a very accelerated time frame. So, you know, we, we kind of um, proved out to ourselves what we thought the right architecture would be. And, and Angus is, or um, Grover is, is a diff drive robot. So, um, you know, the, the drive wheels are along the center axis of, of the system. And, you know, the concept was, well, we're gonna kind of drive these underneath our hydroponic modules and lift them up and carry them, you know, over our heads. Um, so we knew we needed a lift system to, to be in there. And we knew we needed, uh, we wanted to do the diff drive and, and kind of create you know, a way for um, this drive system to accommodate bumps and thresholds and, and things in the greenhouse. And, you know, we, we were able to kind of hash out the very kind of rough requirements. Um, and we set, you know, a bunch of different parameters on what the footprint of this would be based on what made sense from a hydroponic grow module size. And, and we did, you know, kind of all this work that goes into <clears throat> just coming up with the rough, rough requirements, um, you know, for what, what this robot would need to be. Um, and, and from there, you know, it's, it, things can move very quickly. Right. So you know, with a very small team, we, we did the kind of the design and, and engineering of it. And we built uh, a few different prototypes, um, proved out, you know, motor sizing and, and lifting capacity and, and all these things. Um, with some very kind of scrappy prototypes, picked up, um, you know, modules full of hundreds of gallons of water and drove them around and slammed the brakes on and, and try to just kind of put these prototypes through a bit of a, a torture test to prove to ourselves, like, okay, this is, this is kind of the right path. And then from that, you know, um, you're able to really start doing the detailed design, we did the detailed design work. Until, until that point, you were still sort of having the option open to completely screw that design and go for a different design. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, the, pro the prototype had um, a relatively similar drive system, but it wasn't, you know, what we ended up with in the, in the final product. Um, and, you know, as you go through that process, you know, I'm, I'm like a firm believer in, in engineering models. 
probably because I'm, I'm bad at math, but, um, you know, for me, being able to, to actually just prove these concepts out is, is, is really important because you can do, you know, you can do all the analysis that you want. Um, but, you know, the second you build something and the second you start using it, you actually realize a lot of things that, you know, the, the analysis just isn't going to tell you. Right. Um, you know, a good example for that is, is kind of the first, the first lift system concept that we had for Grover, you know, just wanting to be able to, to prove that, you know, this was going to actually lift, you know, a thousand pounds of, of water and plants and, and, um, you know, the easiest way to do that is do some math, figure out, you know, what the capacity of, of these components needs to be. Order a bunch of components, got a couple of plates, water jet cut, um, because it's fast and easy, bolted this prototype together, hooked a cordless drill up to it and, and ran it. Right. So, um, that really kind of scrappy fast prototype was, was easily able to lift like a thousand pounds. Um, and that was with a cordless drill. So knowing that, you know, whatever motor that we do end up putting in there is easily going to be able to have a bit more torque than, than that drill kind of really solidifies the fact that, you know, that, that design direction makes sense. And that's a, that's a path that we could definitely go down. Um, so, yeah, I mean, my, my background when it comes to that stuff is like far more, far more practical. And I'd like to just kind of go in the shop, build something, prove it out, and then, um, you know, be able to, to kind of start hashing out the, the fine details from there. Um, you know, another, another system that we did that on was uh, our propagation system, which, takes care of about 60,000 plants, um, and, and handles a lot of, um, nutrient rich water and, and has, you know, some automation controls and fluid handling and, and everything in that. But, um, you know, water dynamics is, is kind of a hard thing to, to wrap your head around. Sometimes, um, you can easily, you can easily pick, you know, a pump that's going to do it right. But you know, when you actually start running that system, you know, it's really hard to tell on paper, like how laminar, you know, your flow is going to be out of these nozzles. Is it going to, you know, spray everywhere is going to splash more than you expected. Um, you know, what are the, what are all these things that, you know, you, you can't really, um, do the modeling for, or wouldn't make sense to invest that much effort into modeling it when, you know, I can go in an afternoon, put together a rough mock-up of the system and start spilling water all over the floor. So, um, yeah, I mean, with, with Grover, uh, especially we did, you know, a lot of prototyping early on just to prove key fundamental pieces of the system out. And that would be, you know, the diff drive, the, you know, the lift system, um, which, you know, does need to lift thousand pounds and, and move around, you know, a greenhouse really, um, really safely and, and with a lot of stability. So, um, yeah, that was definitely the, the first step, um, for that. And then, you know, once we've ironed kind of those prototypes out, you know, it makes sense to start, start the detail design. So you had the problem with with angles. You realize, okay, we got to change something something there. But then you mentioned that you have like you know operations and like many other different uh, people that want your time and the time of your team. And like you have a framework to say, okay, actually this project is the one that we are focusing now on because hmm, I made an analysis. Or um, is that more a gut feeling? How how do you make the choice to work on a on a big project like that? Yeah. I mean, early on, it's, um, kind of, I feel like an early stage startup is a lot of gut feeling in a, uh, you know, as a, as the company grows and, and, you know, you start to get more resources and you start to be able to, um, do a lot more future planning. 
um, that, that changes quite a bit, you know, so the way, the way we kind of operate and, and decide what, what projects we want to focus on and what projects we want to tackle, um, you know, there's kind of, there's a few ways, right? Like one, we have, um, we have models that, that look at every aspect of, you know, greenhouse production from, from seed to harvest, to packing, to shipping, to, um, all of that. And we'll look at, you know, basically the labor and time involved in doing those actions. Um, and then, you know, that, that becomes like a very, uh, kind of typical product development path where you would, where you would look at these areas and say, okay, well, you know, we have a whole lot of labor and a whole lot of overhead working on, you know, this one task, you know, if we, if we start to, to develop some automation and some technology, you know, what is that going to cost us? What is the ROI on that? You know, is that something we want to pursue? Um, so that's like a very kind of typical way to go about it. Um, the other, the other aspects are, are a bit more strategic and not as, um, you know, don't hit the bottom line of, you know, company operating expenses like, um, like pieces of automation equipment and, and greenhouse wood. So that'd be like strategic projects that we'd want to work on, um, knowing that, you know, it's going to support our plant science initiatives or it's going to support, um, you know, this, this research that we want to do because, you know, in a few years we might want to get into you know, a specific crop. Um, and those, those are a bit more of a, a calculated um, kind of strategic approach. When it comes to um, resources, you know, at the beginning, at a startup, you don't have any, right? It's, you know, very small, small group of people working on, working on, on something and they're typically very passionate about it. And, you know, you just, you get, you, you accomplish a whole lot with, with very little, um, which is kind of the most rewarding thing. But, you know, as, as we grow, there's a lot more forecasting that goes into, you know, like what we want to tackle next year. Right. So, you know, for next year, I know a lot of the plant science, you know, engineering initiatives that we want to undertake and, and how my team needs to support those or, you know, for operations, you know, what's, what kind of equipment would, would best benefit them in their, in their daily operations and, and kind of um, support that side of the business. And, and you can plan these out given, you know, the resources that you have on hand, the talent that you have on hand, you know, what, what we're looking to do from a headcount standpoint from, for the company. Um, but yeah, I mean, the times will always come up um, like you were kind of, of mentioning where, where people are fighting for, for resources. Right. So, um, you know, when that, when that happens or, or something, something fails and people need to be diverted off of what they're working on and, and focus on, getting something back online or fixing it or implementing, you know, engineering fixes or something like that. Um, you know, that that's always going to happen no matter what. And, you know, very rarely do you just have resources sitting around not doing anything. And, and when that stuff comes up, you can, you can put them on it. Um, so, you know, when, when that happens, you, know, you just, you just make a, you make a judgment call and you kind of prioritize, prioritize the things and, and execute on them. Grover was one of the more down to earth, initiatives or more strategic kind like which one uh which kind was it yeah so 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 grover would been um kind of a, a major initiative for for the company right so um you know our our architecture is, is you know based off of this at this point and, and you know a couple of years ago when i started you know that was that was the next thing that 
you know, almost everybody in engineering was focused on. When I say everybody in engineering, it was like three people working on it at that time. So, um, you know, that was, that was definitely a huge priority um, for, for the company. And, you know, it's still the architecture and, and system that we're using now, which is, which is great. Um, so that one's, that's, that's really easy to allocate those resources to, right? When it's a, a major initiative and, and a huge company goal, um, it gets harder when, you know, it's something that you know you need, but other stuff is going to kind of come up that requires people's attention and, and you kind of have to, um, yeah, just make those, make those judgment calls along the way. So we figured your basic design, you needed to lift something uh, and so on. What's the next step? Yeah, the next step um, for, for Grover, especially, was just a lot of detailed design after we, we planned out, um, did all the prototypes and, and validated the, the kind of core engineering concepts and, and architecture. Um, and then, you know, I think probably at that point is, is maybe the time I enjoy the most is, is like the heads down, just you just start designing this thing, right? And, um, you know, there's a lot of kind of trying to spec components and, and find, you know, the right motors and right vendor to use and designing, you know, all of these little pieces and subsystems. And, you know, you start to see this thing really like taking shape and, and coming together. And, um, you know, you run into constant roadblocks, right? Where like, I have no idea how I'm going to package all this in the space. And then, you know, you get these little moments of clarity that that kind of happen in the, the design process. And you're like, oh, I've got a great idea come up with solutions to all these little challenges that pop up. And um, yeah, I mean, for me, I think that's the most exciting and rewarding part is like just starting to, to do all this, this design and see everything kind of come together and start to fit together and mature. Um, you know, for, for Grover uh, at, at the time when we did the first iteration, we left, we left kind of the, um, the outer, the outer shell that, that you see um, to, to later in the process. Um, we'll, while we did the design, we always kind of kept it in mind, like what is what is the ID and, and the look and feel of this thing going to be. Um, but that was not really a inherent kind of part of the design. It was really important that we got this thing that would work really functionally and, and you know meet the meet the goals of the company. Um, so we did, you know, essentially all the the engineering and and design work up front, and then. At the kind of the end, we did this really big design sprint and had several people all working on kind of these these beautiful kind of fairings that you see on the outside of outside of the robot, um, which was also kind of a very um, rewarding and, and fun time to to have a bit more of a team effort towards the end end sprint to get it over the line. But um, yeah, and I mean from there you you kind of decide what how many you want to build, right? Um, you know, we designed it, we designed it knowing that, you know, this is the first iteration right off the bat, we're going to build five of these, five of these robots. And that shapes, shapes the design choices that you make and how you're going to manufacture the, the chassis that's in there and, and what manufacturing processes you're going to make all these other parts out of. Um, so yeah, then we, we just start, once, once the design is good enough, you start, you start ordering parts. It sounds a lot like, like my experience in my uh, at Sustain, where, where we also built the indoor farm for for offices. Um, I wonder if you have more more structure to it. You know, like if you um, 
so for example what what do you do if you run into roadblocks do you like plan time is okay i plan three days but i know i take six days you know if you give a if, if you give a roadmap and tell this to your other colleagues um or like how do you how do you plan for unknown unknowns because that's what happened a lot to us in in, in our case so yeah yeah i mean you don't you don't know what you don't know right um I think, you know, with any hardware, hardware project, you know, we typically start at the end when we build out a timeline, right? So there's, there's a time where you actually need this, this product for whatever reason. And, you know, if it's consumer electronics, you know, maybe you have this, this highly publicized release date, or, you know, you're trying to get it out in time for Christmas. Um, you know, with, with something like a iron ox, you know, we're developing systems and we'll have a date where, you know, we need, we need this operational in a greenhouse because it unlocks, um, you know, the next tier of scale for us, or, you know, we can add, you know, several hundred more, um, grow modules if, if we have this equipment in and, and that's, that's the plan. So, you know, I think no matter what, you're always going to have some, some date that you, you really need this thing. And then from there, you know, I typically just back out like, okay, how long, you know, is there a transit and install time? You know, and you start kind of looking at that and be like, okay, you know, this system will take, you know, a week to get to where we need it to. It's going to take two weeks to get it installed and commissioned. So you start just kind of backing out the timeline from that. Um, you know, and then before that, you know, you got to build it. So, and test it. So you allocate a certain amount of time there. Um, you know, with, with, with hardware development, you're, you're so beholden to, to vendors delivering on time. Um, and that's kind of an, an area where a lot of people overlook is, you know, if you don't have a really good track record with a vendor and, and know that they deliver when they say they're going to deliver or, you know, whatever the case may be, like you need to add a lot of buffer in there for that. Um, so that's one area where you, you kind of need to say, okay, you know, we're going to order all this sheet metal I've never ordered from this vendor before, but, you know, for whatever reason we're, we're going with them and, you know, I need to assume maybe like at least two weeks that they're going to blow the date by. So then you try to bake that into the schedule, right? And you kind of do that at every step of the way and, and put in these mitigation plans. Um, you know, when it comes to the design side, the the most important thing for me is like, you, you know, at the beginning, the areas that you're not sure of, right? So, you know, um, well, I don't really know what this these water dynamics are going to be like. I don't really know, you know, how how stable this this lift system is going to be but those are things that you want to say okay the very first thing is to prove these out and say okay i'm going to go build some some engineering models i'm going to go identify these areas that are really high risk put my mind at ease and know that if i if i do go down this design path like i can make this work right um and for me that's kind of the biggest thing at the design phase is is really early, early on prototyping early on kind of just proving the things that you know you're a little you're a little shaky on out um you know there'll be there'll be as there always is things that come up that you just didn't expect and, and weren't expecting to be so challenging you might be like oh you know i need to have an actuator in here to do this um to do this motion or or whatever and you know lo and behold you can't find an actuator that actually fits in you know the space and then try to fit a bigger actuator in and then, you know, encroaches in other areas. And, and all of a sudden, you know, you have this, this cascading you know, waterfall of, of changes. Um, you know, I don't, I don't, I haven't come across a, just a, a way to, to say, okay, like 
if this happens, you know, here, here's how you should act or here's what you should do. I think, you know, it's all, it's all very project dependent and it's all very product dependent, you know, on what you're working on, your level of confidence in, in knowing, you know, what caveats um, there are going to be as far as, as the design process is going to go. But, you know, I think building out, building out things to prove out your areas of concern really early on um, is probably the biggest impact to, to making sure that whole design process goes really smoothly. You, you prototyped a lot, um, did quite some testing. What are, what are things you consider when you design something for different scales? You said five robots in the beginning. How does it change the design if you need it for 50 or, or more? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the biggest, that's the biggest thing. I think when you, when you start to go into, um, a product that, you know, in the future, you're going to just scale up to some point, right. You know, if we went to, if we went to design Grover right off the bat and say, you know, we need to design this for like 500 robots, that would be a very different challenge, right? You need a, a much different team makeup. You need a lot of supporting functions, you know, to, to just have you know three people working on it, you know, is not going to be enough. Um, you know, three people can make a really awesome, you know, robot that you can build in quantity of five. But you know, when you start looking at something that you want to build in quantities of like five hundred, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of differences, right? Um, you know, manufacturing methods for almost every part. Right? You know, if, can you have a welded steel chassis at five? Of course. 500 well yeah but it's probably going to be you know really challenging to to get that at a cost point that you need to get that um you know a secure enough supply chain and vendor base that can make make those parts um so then you might look at like okay you know if we're going to make 500 we should figure out a different manufacturing method and maybe that's like casting the chassis right or maybe that's um you know maybe sheet metal would be a, a better option so you know, the, the scale that you want to build something at, you know, informs the design at, at every step of the way, right? Um, and it informs the timeline as well. So when you, when you start designing this, you, you know, at that point, you need to start bringing in, you know, what vendors that you want to actually use and you need to start working with them uh, as the design develops, right? And be like, okay, you know, I have this idea, you know, what challenges does this present from your side? Is this going to increase the cost? Is it going to, um, you know, make this harder to manufacture? Make it is is the size inconvenient to ship? Even right is a is something that you have to start paying attention to. How are we going to package this? You know, is this going to are we going to make this in in offshore? Or are we going to try to build this in house? And you know, um, it it really the scale that you want to manufacture something at is going to really inform you know, everything from, from timelines to the design choices that you make, um, to the vendors that you're going to work with, to the team size that you need. So, um, you know, if you, if you, if we built five, five Grovers, right. Of the, the very first generation, um, which was a couple of years ago. And then you were like, okay, you need to take this and go make 500. I'd be like, absolutely not. You know, it'd be incredibly, incredibly painful experience. Right. You know, um, the way the way the chassis were manufactured, the way you know the datum scheme for how you know everything was, how precise everything was did up, um, the way the way we ran all the wiring, uh, all of these things that you know when you do a first generation of a product are not optimized, right? Um, you know, it's a it's a very iterative process. Do you then go like completely 
back and say, okay, now we do 500, or do you say, okay, let's let's try 50, uh, change things, try like what are what are the different steps between five and 500? Do you do you do that step in one go or? Uh, yeah, I mean, it could definitely, you definitely could, right? Um, it's going to depend a lot on what, what product you're making, right? So just speaking of on, on Grover, like we could, we could have gone from five to, to 500 for sure. Um, you know, you need, you need to set that project up, up for success. And that, you know, re requires having, you know, a supply chain team that is, is finding vendors and building relationships and, and identifying the right people to partner with. Um, you know, you need to have a really solid manufacturing team that is going to going to work on um, you know the DFM and figuring out you know how how we can get you know all these different components that are on the system you know into a form that you know we can manufacture to the tolerances that we we need um, different manufacturing methods that that might be better right um, you know typically if you're if you're going to make something in low quantity it's really easy to just go you know CNC machine everything. Right, and you bolt it together, and that's great. But you know, does that cost the cost of doing that? You know, um, at that five hundred units is, is probably not what you're what you're going to be happy with. So you know, then do you need you know to look at that part out of sheet metal, right? Or look at that? Do we cast that part? Do we mold that part? And you know, what are the implications of that? So you need people kind of focused on that. Um, you need a lot more documentation. You need a lot more analysis from. Um, you know, like tolerance stack ups and how parts are going to fit. You know, if I get 500 parts and, you know, a fraction of them are outside of, you know, the normal kind of tolerance bands, you know, are they junk? Do they still work? You know, what do we do with that tolerance? So there's a lot that that has to happen outside of just, you know, the, the design work for, for designing it for 500. Um, and you know, if you're going to do a project like that, you you probably structure the the development cycle differently, um, and you'd have separate phase gates. So when you go through you know kind of a typical hardware development process, you have you know your initial prototypes, and you you agree to build a certain number of those, and you gather all the learnings, and then you go through you know EBT, DBT, PVT, so engineering design um, product like validation testing. Um, and at each one of those, you're building a certain number of prototypes and, and, you know, those are looks like work like models or, or, you know, whatever you're trying to prove out to yourself that, um, you're going to get to the end and, and go, okay, I'm ready to order 500 and you will have done all the due diligence that you need to do that reliability is there that your, um, manufacturing processes are solid. Um, that the, the tooling that you're going to kick off and spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on is, is exactly what it needs to be. And it's not going to change in the next week, right? When you come up with a, a new fix. I have a better idea for that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> you know, at, at some point that, at some point that ship sails, right. And, and when it, when it leaves, like you're, you're stuck. So, you know, you set up the project to, to have these phase gates that, you know, when you get to that point, you have, you know, the utmost confidence that, you know, what you're committing to is, is what you really need. Um, you know, you can iterate on anything forever, right. And you can make these fine adjustments, but at some point done is done is done. Two questions on the, on the production side, and then we move on to the team side a bit. Um, do you, do you have like a workshop in at Ironox with, you know, CNC and everything and a casting machine and all that? Yeah, we actually, 
Yeah, we do. Um, so, you know, I'm at our, our facility in Santa Clara right now, which is, which is where we do um, the production of our, our systems and, and build our, our robots and, and automation systems. Um, and it's split up into kind of a big um, manufacturing and, and assembly floor. And then we have, you know, we have a whole kind of prototype shop that you'd expect with CNC lathe and mill and drill presses and um, saws and uh, any kind of typical typical shop tools and material. So um, as far as prototyping and, and experimenting stuff goes, um, we can do a lot of that in-house. Um, we do we do use a lot of kind of quick turn manufacturing services. Um, we have some really good good vendors for all different kinds of, of products, whether it's CNC or sheet metal or weldments or plastics or, or whatever the case may be that will will leverage leverage heavily even for even for prototypes. Um, so yeah, yeah, we're definitely set up to, to kind of iterate quickly in that area. Let's let's move on to the to the teamwork. So hardware is one one part, right? And but you also mentioned that there's a lot of uh, artificial intelligence going into the robot. Um, and how do you tie in the different teams that work on on the same project? And what do you do if one team has a roadblock, or how do you manage the dependencies of each team? Yeah, great question. Um, you know, I think from from the hardware side, the most important thing is identifying what other groups need really early on. Because if you were to design this whole, you know, a whole robotic system, build it and then deliver it to, you know, the roboticists or software team or, or machine learning or, or anybody else that is going to be involved with it, their, their work can't start then because then it's going to take, you know, exponentially longer to have a finished product. Um, so what I, what I think is really important is that you, you produce assets that they can use really early on. So, you know, with Grover, um, we built, you know, after we had validated some of the prototypes, we built another prototype just for, you know, the roboticists and software team to use. And that had a lot of the core functionality um, that, that Grover would have. So we made sure that the drive system was really accurate to what the final product would be. We use the same LIDARs that we we're going to use on the final product. We use the same kind of motherboard and, and control motor controllers and, and those elements. Um, but, you know, the lift system on the, on the robot was just a motor, right? It wasn't connected to any dynamic things because, you know, what they're really concerned about is, you know, once they localize under one of our grow modules and they command a lift that, you know, that motor is going to turn and do what they want. So, um, you know, we give them basically an engineering model that, can then unblock, you know, their product development as well. Um, and I think that's from any kind of hardware context, that's super important because then you can have two teams that are, that are working in parallel and what they're going to, they're going to find um, issues along the way with, with the components that are on there. Right. And they're going to say, um, you know, the encoder on this motor isn't accurate enough, or, um, you know, these, these LIDARs aren't performing the way that, that we expect. And they're going to have suggestions on on improvements that you're going to make, and you're going to want to roll those in as early as possible, right? Based on on their findings as well. So, you know, I think it's it's really important at the beginning of a project to kind of identify those those crossover points um, for any group, right? So for us, you know, developing a robot with roboticists in mind, um, you know, how can we get them assets as soon as possible, right? And even if they're, you know, not exact representation of what the final product is going to be. 
you know, what is, what is going to be the most beneficial to them so they can start their development and they can start, start writing code and they can start, you know, getting all these different systems on, on the robot to talk to each other. Um, so I think that's, that's really important. Um, if you're, if you're developing any kind of hardware, the other thing is, um, I, I really like kind of teams focused on one product. So if you have, you know, all these different disciplines, right? Like a robotics, robotics team and a software team and um, automation and controls and mechanical engineering, you know, do you have the ability to, to, to dedicate individuals on those teams to kind of the separate team? So we just create a, a Grover team. And, you know, there's one roboticist and software engineer and one mechanical engineer, and, and they're responsible for, for bringing this product to fruition and getting it to function. Um, and in some, in some cases, you're, you're able to do that. And I think that works really well because everyone has like this, this vested interest in, in making that, that product successful. It's really hard if you have, you know, teams that have their whole roadmap planned and they're you know, have all these objectives that they're trying to hit. And then you go and you say, Hey, I need, you know, two people off this team, you know, three days a week to focus on this. Well, that's, that's a real, that creates a bit of a conflict. So, um, you know, the best way to, to deal with that is, is when you, when you start doing your roadmap planning, when you start doing your project planning, you know, as we look to maybe do another iteration of Grover, right. What I say is like, this is the team I envision that is going to be needed for this. And then, you know, before you even start kicking this project off, make sure that you can get those resources lined up and make sure that people can um, allocate those resources from other teams and, and, and you can set that up for, for success from the start. Um, you know, it's really hard to, to take teams that are running kind of flat out and try to peel resources off them and allocate them to something else. So um, it does take a lot of planning and, and coordination at, at kind of a high, high project level to, to make sure those are successful. Do you actively keep resources free uh, for other teams to take your like team members for for a project? Yeah, that's a great that's a great question. Um, you know, it it's easier at certain times than others, um, and it's easier to have people that are kind of you. You can definitely plan it that way. You can have you can say I need a resource that is is kind of that flex resource, right? And the project load that they get might be really light or, or maybe not projects that are in the critical path um, for the company objectives. And knowing that, you know, when, when something fails um, or a team's like, oh, I need, you know, it'd be really helpful if I could have this fixture or this, this setup jig to, to calibrate these cameras or, you know, whatever the case may be that you, you plan and you can say like, yeah, that this person can, can kind of stop what they're working on for, for two weeks and help you out with that. Um, you know, that's, that depends on kind of where you're at from a company standpoint and the headcount that, that you have. And, and, you know, that's, that's a bit of a luxury. Um, you know, most of the time someone's got to pause what they're, they're actively working on and, and, and help someone else out. Um, but, you know, I, I firmly believe like you should do that. Right. Um, but ideally up front, you'd be, you'd be doing the planning and kind of tech roadmap in a way that that stuff is kind of mitigated. How do you keep track of all the moving pieces or like the different areas you need to manage at the same time? I, I, I imagine um, like if you 
you have your you ship your product and then you realize damn <laughs> a lot of things don't work or there is a problem here there's a problem there do you how do you manage the different bug fixes that come along the way and yeah um yeah another good question so you know we have a we have a really good um product team right and they're kind of um, the go-between for for any project we have going on in the company whether that is you know construction of the greenhouse um, development of you know um, automation systems for the greenhouse even like selecting different packaging that we'd want to put our produce in right like every project that we have going on has has a product manager and and has someone in that that capacity who is getting all the necessary parties together is is kind of documenting um you know all the the meetings that we have and all the kind of um checkpoints that we get to and 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 really ensuring that that these things keep moving forward um you know i think i think it's because because we have such a strong team in that area like that that makes these things move move really really well and it's it's really good to get all these different teams in a room have kind of someone there to to mediate you know whatever whatever we're trying to to solve and and make sure there's you know next steps and action items to to kind of address um you know from a from a software standpoint you know we use jira and we use confluence and we use kind of um you know every company has has different software for, for that kind of stuff um and you know, depending on the severity of things that that pop up, um, you know, there's a lot there's a lot that happens when you start using a system and you're like, oh, it'd be nice if I had this functionality or this feature, and that that'll definitely make it on you know kind of a list, and we'll do debriefs after people have been using it for a while, and we'll you know gather all this information from from the user, and some of that we'll need to act on you know immediately because it has a, a real significant impact to the day to day operations of, of the system or it's a big reliability concern or, or whatever the case may be in that, that'll require like immediate attention and immediate fix. There'll be other things that'll make a lot more sense to just roll into the next rev or, you know, roll into the design before we order another five systems, right? Um, so yeah, depending on on kind of the severity of, of what's going on, you know, we'll just make the, the appropriate plan and, and path forward. Um, but I do think having like really good project managers um, you know, at a company, especially like ours, that is just so spread out across so many different disciplines and, and areas of operation is, is absolutely critical. One, one last question related to that. Uh, how do you manage the, or how do you create the definition of done when you build a product? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's kind of the eternal question, I guess, you know, when is, when is done good enough? Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a firm believer, like, perfect is is the enemy of shipped right like if you if you're going for perfection you are never gonna ship anything um what's what's critical is that you you scope these projects in a way that you know you're very realistic and honest with yourself like what is actually achievable like what is a team able to achieve in this this certain amount of time given you know all of these these different constraints um you know the worst thing the worst thing that you can do is go through this you know product development life cycle and inquire incur a bunch of technical debt right so as you go through any hardware project you're inherently going to have 
feature sets and you're going to, you know, or software rather, you know, you're going to have feature sets. You're going to have, um, you know, the elements of this, these systems that don't get to the maturity that you want. And if you, if you are building, you know, five robots, right. And you're using them in operation and, um, there's a bug that causes you to have to reset that robot three times a day. When you're, when you're using two of them on a day-to-day basis, you know, that's not a big deal, right? You're like, ah, let's hit this bug again. Like, we'll just reset it and keep going. Well, when you scale that to 50 or you scale that to a hundred and you have a hundred robots that all need to be reset like three times a day, you know, that's like a crippling, it's a crippling amount of overhead. Right. So, you know, you need to be really honest with yourself in, in what, is achievable and what level of maturity your product needs to be at. If you're going to ship, you know, if we were making robots to sell to the general public, you know, done looks very different than it does for us right now. And, you know, done for a product that goes to the general public needs to be like a, a bunch of bugs have been ironed out, you know, a, a lot of reliability testing, a lot of user testing. Um, you know, it's, it's a very, the stakes are very different. And like one of the huge benefits of, of Ironox building this hardware, you know, for ourselves is that, you know, done for us can, can look really scrappy. You know, we can say like, you know, we know this is the first iteration of this, this automation system. You're going to run, we can tell the people on the floor, like you're going to run into these bugs and we know it. And, you know, they understand that and it comes up and, you know, they, they can work around it or they, they note it down and, um, you know, we gather all that data and we gather all that feedback and, and we can roll that into the next iteration. You know, if you're, if you're selling that product to the general public, like you don't have that luxury, you don't have that opportunity. Like when, when they get whatever your product is, it needs to be like really buttoned up and really polished and, and function well, or, you know, you'll get, you know, kind of get crucified for it. So, you know, I think, I think it's really important that, um, you know, I would rather release a product with, with fewer features that I spent more time getting to a level um, of reliability and a level of function that, that is really good and high than I would trying to over-spec it, cram more features in and not, you know, do them all to 80%. You know, 10 features at 80% is far worse than, you know, five features at 99%. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, upfront, you need to be really, really calculated with that. With, with what you want to roll in. And I think a big part of that is, is knowing when to also, you know, stop work on something. You know, if you've got a month before this thing's got to be at a certain point and, you know, you're, all these things are, you know, at 50%, you know, at some, some point someone's got to give and, and you've got to say, okay, well, we're going to pull this feature set out. We're going to pull, you know, this functionality out and this will be something that's going to go into the next iteration. And this is the core functionality. We can focus on that. We can get that to the 99%. And then, you know, whatever we release in this, this iteration is going to function. And, you know, we just going to make it known that the next iteration is going to have these things accounted for in it. Do you have a framework for um, managing the different scopes? Uh, or in general, do you have favorite frameworks that you use and recommend to us, the listeners? Um, not, not necessarily. I feel like, you know, every, every product kind of has its own, maybe its own unique requirements, right. And, and how you would, how you would manage that product life cycle and, and development. So, 
know, for something like you were, if you're going to make something for consumer electronics, right? If you're going to make a smartwatch or or something like that, you know, you're going to have a very different development life cycle and, and needs um, than you would design in Grover, for instance. Um, you know, I think it all it all really comes down to you know what what the product is, what you know to your earlier question, what done looks like. Um, you know, the way the way we typically go about it for something like Grover is there, there's so many touch points from from different groups on that system. So whether that's you know hardware engineering, uh, electronics and controls, software, robotics, um, you know the grow team, operators in the greenhouse, you know, whatever the case may be. It's really important, like at the beginning that we gather a lot of input on, on kind of their desires, especially now that we've had a couple of iterations of this, this robot. You know, there's a lot of people that have experience with it and, and are seeing things that, you know, the engineering team might not be seeing. It's important that they bring all that stuff up, up to the table. So the way, you know, a project for us would typically run is, is we, we could get all those people in a room Right. And we kind of kick the project off and we do a big brainstorming session and we want to make sure that everyone is really heard on, on what they'd like to see or challenges they had in previous iterations or, or whatever the case may be. Um, and, and we'll, we'll gather all of that, that data information. And, and from there, we'll probably have more brainstorms, maybe with more focused groups on different aspects of the, the system. Um, and, you know, along with that, we'll create, a PRD, right? So like a product requirements document, and that'll be anything from um, what is what can the allowable footprint of this thing be? You know, what what power does it need to operate on? Um, how what's the uptime per day? Um, you know, any critical kind of feature spec that would need to go into this product, you know, should should be in this doc. And the whole point is to get everyone aligned on you know what we're going to deliver. So you know, at the end of the project you don't deliver a robot and someone's like, I thought this was going to have, you know, six LIDARs on it and it's only got two. Well, you know, at the very beginning, this was, you know, all discussed and it's a living document, you know, it changes over the course of, of product development. But, um, you know, for the most part, it's important that, that we get every, everybody's voice should, should be heard. Um, some features won't make it in. Some will get pushed to, you know, maybe a different rev um, and, and that'll happen. But, you know, the framework that we would probably go around for, for something like developing that system is, is like that. We would get, you know, everybody in the room, we do a bunch of brainstorming sessions. We, we do more focused brainstorming sessions. We create, you know, the requirements of what this thing we're, we're building actually needs to, to operate and function. And, um, you know, from there, then, you know, we, we have focus teams that are, that'll start doing the prototyping and design and, and really start, start moving ahead with it. Does the does the PRD have a specific structure, or is that different from project to project? Uh, for the most part, it'll have um, kind of some of the same the same areas, and that might be you know, if you're designing an electromechanical system, um, there'll be areas for <coughs> you know, automation controls, and you know, one of those one of those features might be you know we want every every sensor to have a certain you know electrical operating range, right, um, or you know max power input can be, you know, 100, 120 volts or, you know, whatever the case may be. And then, you know, from food safety, you'll have, you know, a big input and say, you know, all these surfaces need to be stainless and it needs to be minimum of like five inches off the ground so we can clean under it. And 
like all that'll make it in. And so, so you'll have, you'll have different kind of formats that'll work for like all the automation equipment we want to put in might follow a certain one. Uh, the mover robot might follow another, um, you know, systems like a hydroponic grow module uh, would, would probably have, have another, but um, yeah, you, you just kind of lump them in the, in the categories, I think. So we're slowly coming to an end. Um, what are your key takeaways so far from either Ironox, Apple, or yeah, in general, any tips to share? Yeah, uh, key takeaway, I think, from my career in general was I never went anywhere for the money. Everywhere I went was, was for something else. And that might be leadership that I'd be working with, you know, something as simple as like travel opportunities that would afford me, um, you know, the stuff that I'd be working on or, or who I'd be working with um, always kind of led, led those decisions. Um, and I think, you know, that's, I don't know, for me anyway, that's worked, that's worked very well. And um, yeah, I mean, I would encourage people to, to do the things that they're, you know, passionate about and, you know, money is, is certainly important. If they stop paying me, I'd probably stop coming to work, but um you know, on a whole, I think it's 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 served me really well to 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 follow stuff at you know a level outside of of money. Um, you know, my key takeaway from from Ironox, I think, is that the right team like is is absolutely critical, right? Like, you know, getting getting a group of people together that, that all have a, this, this harmonious dynamic, they're all, you know, good at their jobs. They all care about what they're doing, you know, leads to this just incredible, incredible work atmosphere, incredible environment. Um, you know, the, the stuff that you produce is, is just on another level um, when there's this like really good kind of synergy amongst the team and, and cross-functional teams and, and in the company as a whole. Um, you know, I think, Iron Ox out of anywhere I've I've worked is is easily the healthiest the healthiest company without even you know a close second. Um, you know I enjoy enjoy coming to work every day. Like my team is is absolutely incredible. Um, designs amazing things, produces amazing things. You know, does it in in very short order. You know, we pull the timeline in a month. You know, everyone's just like you know hell yeah let's get it. So um, you know being able to seeing seeing that is is. Um, I haven't experienced it anywhere else and it's, it's really made, um, I think it makes just an absolutely enormous difference. So the people that you're doing this stuff with is, is super important and, you know, building, building a really good team dynamic is I think critical to, to any company, company success for sure. Um, we drink a lot at work. <laughs> um, you know, there's a lot of, the atmosphere is the atmosphere is relaxed when it needs to be, and it's it's kind of aggressive when it needs to be. Everyone's everyone's really aligned on on the goals that we're going after, and you know the afternoon comes and and everyone's working all hard all day. Everyone you know kick back and have a beer, and you know it's 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 fun, and it's it's also um, you know everyone's everyone's here to work and do a great job. Um, but yeah, you need to you need to be able to. You spend an inordinate amount of time with all these people, right? And it's it's really important that it's going to be fun when you come to work, right? Like people are going to be you know excited to see each other, and that comes a lot with you know taking time out of out of work to 
have a beer or everyone have lunch together or, you know, um, knock off early for the weekend. And, you know, for me, I'm a strong believer in balance. Like I'll, I expect everyone to, to really grind when we have to and, and work far more than the normal cadence of things. And, you know, the flip side is once we get through that hurdle or once we get through that objective, you know, I'm, I'm going to tell people, to, you know, chill out, like amazing work. We, we did a killer job. Let's relax and kind of enjoy it for, for a bit. And, um, you know, I don't believe in just people working 14 hour days and you know, nobody's going to do their best work in that environment. You know, it all needs to be balanced and it all needs to, it needs to be fun. That's awesome advice. Do you have book recommendations? Do you want to share? Yeah. My only, my only two recommendations, um, nothing to do with product management or development, but I guess a bit to do with product management. Um, I would say extreme ownership, uh, and the dichotomy of leadership are two. um, I don't know. They, they, they suit, they suit my style a bit. I don't think they're going to suit everybody's, but I think there's a lot of really kind of relevant information on, on leadership and, and high performing teams and how to, uh, how to, you know, put teams together that aren't going to let each other down and, and really get a lot done and, and how to lead those teams. So, um, yeah, those would be my two for sure. Any places where people can find you? Yeah, pretty much at our Lockhart, Texas facility or, here in Santa Clara and our manufacturing facility. Um, but anybody can, can look me up on, on LinkedIn in the digital space for sure. All right. So this is literally my last question before we wrap up. <laughs> and that is anything that you want to say, you can say now. I'll leave the stage to you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, first of all, thanks. Thanks for having me on. It was great to, great to talk to you. Um, and yeah, I think the only thing I'd say is, Don't do it for the money. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you. To, thank you for being on the show today. It was a pleasure to talk to you and uh, to have that discussion. Yeah, likewise. Thanks, Simon. All right. There you have it. Another insightful episode. My biggest takeaway is that automated greenhouses are actually extremely promising for carbon neutral food production and that you should try to tackle the least known item first. We might actually do a follow-up episode with one of their software engineering product managers, so stay tuned for that. I'm really looking forward to that episode. In the show notes for this show, you will find the links to the books he mentioned, some pictures of the farm robot and their greenhouses, as well as some quotes that I found personally interesting from this conversation. You can find all of this on our website, productpioneerspodcast.com. Again, thanks everyone who helped to contribute to this episode. Thank you, Alessandro, for editing, Thais and Burjo for additional support, Tom, thank you for the detailed insights and your support, and of course, Code for providing the environment. I hope to see you in the next episode. Until then, have a good one. Bye-bye.